Hello, and welcome to episode number 43 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. In 2017, the New York Times dropped a bombshell article detailing a secret government UFO program that included footage of newly categorized UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. That article, published by a mainstream industry-leading publication like The Times, inspired other publications and news outlets all across the world to follow suit. The ensuing drama resulted in a new wave of public and political interest in the topic of UFOs that has vaulted this field into new heights in the public sphere. Still, as groundbreaking as that article and its contents were, it turns out that numerous errors also squeaked through. In addition, the article opened up many intriguing questions that were never fully answered. At least, until now. This past week saw the publication of a trailblazing new book titled Skinwalkers at the Pentagon that is garnering considerable attention for numerous reasons, not the least of which is because it sets the record straight on many of the details that the Times article ultimately got wrong. But serving as much more than a correction of the historical record, this new book, penned by James Lakatsky, Colm Kelleher, and George Knapp, sheds wholly new light on a secret program titled the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program, or OSAP for short, whose paradigm-changing findings were ultimately delivered to the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, at the culmination of its research. As it turns out, the program Lakatsky and Kelleher spearheaded between 2008 and 2010 covered a broad swath of phenomena that included, but went well beyond, sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena, aka UFOs. Other matters investigated included psychic effects, the often termed hitchhiker phenomenon, poltergeist activity, and the documented physiological effects on human beings of contact with these various mysterious phenomena. No doubt the contents of this book will shock many, and without question, many from the mainstream, both scientists and journalists alike, will balk at much of this material because it brings the question of the primacy of consciousness and controversial matters such as sophisticated non-human intelligence into the fore. But of course, this kind of material is perfectly suited to a podcast such as this one. And so this is precisely the terrain we plan to traverse in this the 43rd episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's podcast, I'd just like to point out that for my eyes, what set the OSAP investigation apart from so many other historical endeavors was an approach combining a commitment to scientific rigor with an openness to pursue the data wherever it took them including beyond mainstream physicalism. Now, again, this is a rare thing. Not very often do you find scientific endeavors that are willing to do this, especially a government-funded one. It's amazing to me that this program ever got off the ground to begin with, but it did, and it went in some very interesting directions and brought to light many of the phenomena those of us intimately familiar with this topic have talked about for a very long time. Now, 
I also want to point out that some are suspicious of any and all current and former employees of the so-called government intelligence services, specifically from within the U.S. government. Now, on the one hand, I understand this caution. I certainly think such people need to earn our trust. That said, when they demonstrate a repeated behavior that suggests their cause now aligns with ours, I think it's short-sighted to dismiss them outright simply because of their former employment. Again, from my point of view, I think that's short-sighted. I think a program like OSAP and a book like this that publishes the findings, makes them public, is a very good thing for our cause. It moves the possibility of disclosure with a capital D forward. It makes it more likely. I also think we have to be careful not to end up inadvertently speaking out of both sides of our mouth by, on the one hand, claiming that we're frustrated that we never get disclosure or revelations from the government pertaining to their investigations into UFOs. And then, on the other hand, when details regarding those programs do come forward, we reject them simply because they're from the government. Okay, with that preamble aside, let's jump right into the book. There's so many important nuggets to get to. But first of all, let's discuss what this book is about, what it was covering. And for this, we turn to the introduction when George Knapp outlines the contents of the book. Quote, This book describes the first steps on this 13-year rocky road that culminated in the release of the UAPTF report in June 2021. It describes the genesis and execution of a unique program run 2008 to 2010 from the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, of the United States that was the first official fully funded study of UAPs since the termination in 1969 of the infamous Project Blue Book, which was run by the United States Air Force. The name of this covert two-year, $22 million DIA program was Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program, OSAP. As the public is now fully aware, the United States government has steadfastly denied any interest in or work on UAP for more than 50 years. Beginning with the publication of an article in the New York Times in 2017, the world now knows that these denials were not factual. There were two remarkable things about OSAP. The first was that it existed at all. Between September 2008 and December 2010, the Pentagon spent those millions investigating UAPs as well as the paranormal and psychic correlates to UAPs. The second remarkable feature that has been secret until the publication of this book was the breadth and scope of OSAP. The details of dozens of controversial projects that comprised this large program are now revealed for the first time in these pages. Unquote. And now, quoting from a later section in that same introduction, something very, very fascinating is discussed. I quote, As this book describes for the first time, the scope of the OSAP investigations at DIA, which were run by Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, was much broader and delved deeply into the psychic and paranormal relationships to UAP interactions. As Appendix 1 in this book lays out in full detail, an enormous body of data concerning the psychic and paranormal connections to UAP interactions currently exist at the Defense Intelligence Agency. 
Shortly after the contract award, OSAP personnel chose to launch the UAP program with as broad a scope as possible. The decision to research paranormal phenomena that co-locate with UAPs and to examine psychic effects in UAP witnesses, in addition to scrutinizing the core UAP technology itself, was not taken lightly because of the controversial nature of the UAP paranormal debate. A significant constituency existed both inside and outside DIA that argued OSAP should only focus on researching the technology of UAPs. We were very fortunate that the OSAP program management at DIA agreed to the expansive scope of the program since it meant that a much broader perspective of UAP was integrated into every aspect of OSAP investigation from the very beginning. The logic behind adopting this strategy came from many years of boots-on-the-ground experience in investigating the UAP at Robert T. Bigelow's National Institute of Discovery Sciences, NIDS, as well as decades of experience of OSAP advisors investigating UAPs, unquote. And by the way, in regards to that last section I just read regarding advisors to OSAP, this is speaking of venerable researchers such as Dr. Jacques Vallée and Dr. Eric Davis. From my perspective, that was another check in favor of this research, of this investigation, of this entire program. When you're relying on the baselines established by researchers such as Jacques Vallée and Eric Davis, who have been in this field for decades, you know you're in good hands to begin with. So that gives you some sense of the depth and breadth of this program. It was a very ambitious endeavor, to say the least. And I, for one, applaud their efforts to connect these other aspects of high strangeness to the sightings of UAP, because clearly the literature behind this phenomenon that has been built over decades supports this notion. This is the direction the research needs to go in. And indeed, these researchers followed that very course of action. Now let's get to OSAP versus ATIP, because as was pointed out in the introduction, there has been some misunderstanding and some misstating of facts inadvertently that are clarified in this book. And now quoting from a later section of the book, I quote, OSAP Bass was not ATIP. The ATIP moniker arose from an unclassified nickname that was inserted into a letter that was sent from Senator Harry Reid to the Deputy Secretary of Defense requesting the creation of a Special Access Program, SAP. This letter is described fully in Chapter 10. Because Lekatsky, the DIA program manager, wished to protect the OSAP name for security reasons, ATIP was a made-up substitute name for Reed's letter to describe the OSAP. After OSAP had shut down, the ATIP designation was used to describe a completely separate, small initiative that was underway at the Pentagon to study UAPs encountered by military personnel. ATIP involved a small group of people working on the UAP problem with direct knowledge of their superiors when their day jobs allowed them to. The New York Times article created enormous confusion by mistakenly linking the $22 million funding to the small informal ATIP initiative. The $22 million was specifically targeted only to OSAP. ATIP, as used by the New York Times, was not OSAP, and OSAP was not ATIP. 
the $22 million was contracted through the Defense Intelligence Agency into OSAP to evaluate the threat potential of UAPs. Not a dollar of that sum went to ATIP, despite widespread statements over the last several years. Unquote. Now, hopefully that sheds some light on this complicated matter. And it's understandable that there would be confusion. Because if you caught that, the moniker ATIP was used on two different occasions. It was used as a nickname only by OSAP, by individuals who wanted to keep the true name secret. And then later on, people like Lou Elizondo were involved in a different ATIP that used that same name, but it was not the ATIP connected to OSAP. So I hope that clarifies it. And as was pointed out in that section of the book, the $22 million in funding, very importantly, went to OSAP and what was going on between 2008 and 2010. A very complicated matter, but hopefully that serves to bring some clarification to the matter and set the record straight once and for all. Okay, now that we've got some of the names, the monikers, the designations somewhat clearer in our minds now, let's now turn to the meat and bones of this book, discussing the actual investigations into different phenomena. And just in case there are some of you in the audience who are not familiar, let's touch on a portion of the book that describes the background behind Skinwalker Ranch and why it has been so central, not only to the question of UFOs, but to high strangeness and anomalous phenomena in general. Quoting from the book, Since 1994, the 500-acre property known as Skinwalker Ranch, located in northeastern Utah, has been continuously studied by humans and sensors. Metallic UAPs, flying orbs of varying colors, otherworldly creatures, discarnate voices, poltergeist, electromagnetic anomalies, and orange portals have co-located as well as materialized separately on the property. These extraordinary phenomena have been witnessed by scores of independent visitors to the ranch almost continuously between 1994 and 2021. James Lekatsky and Jonathan Axelrod are two of the primary characters in this book, and both had read Hunt for the Skinwalker by 2007. In turn, as described in detail in Chapter 5, the book was the major stimulus for Lekatsky contacting Bigelow in July 2007 and subsequently visiting the ranch. The rest, as they say, is history. Thus, an eerie cause-and-effect lineage exists beginning in 1996 with NID's research forays onto Skinwalker Ranch. Lekatsky and Axelrod reading Hunt for the Skinwalker in 2007, continuing through the creation of OSAP in 2008, then of ATIP years later, and eventually to the UAPTF in 2018. Like a creepy miasma, Skinwalker Ranch lurked behind the creation of these organizations, and its baleful influence was felt by their most important participants. Unquote. Now let's get to actual encounters that happened for the individuals involved with the teams investigating matters at Skinwalker Ranch. Quoting from a later section of the book, quote, all three were seasoned operatives who were equally comfortable out in the field or in briefing rooms in the Pentagon. On that warm July night in 2009, as they strode confidently on the track leading west on the ranch, they were already scoping out the Badlands terrain for places to deploy their technological assets. 
About a half mile into their hike, the temperature suddenly dropped like a stone. From 75 degrees, the air was now 20 degrees colder. All three stopped and silently looked at each other. There was no wind blowing, the air was still, and the zone they were standing in gave them a deep chill. Axelrod silently raised his hand and motioned backwards. All three walked backwards, and within a couple of yards, the temperature had gone back to high 70s. Axelrod motioned forward, and the three moved silently in unison. Again, they walked into a wall of coldness. Weather front, muttered Costigan. Probably, answered Axelrod, and again the trio retreated. Again, they exited the wall of chilled air into the warm night. Three times they repeated the maneuver, and three times the sharp boundary that defined the wall of cold air remained in the same location. Let's move on, Axelrod said, and the trio resumed their journey west. Costigan began scanning the environment, and all around him, the bleak Badlands landscape looked eerie in night vision green. Thirty yards further on, all three began to feel anxious, and as they walked further, the anxiety deepened and turned into fear. No one said anything. They continued on their journey. But every step they took, their fear seemed to escalate. There was no external reason. No one wanted to be the first to mention the alarm they felt. Ten yards further on, the fear had escalated to mortal fear, and eventually Axelrod raised a hand and all three stopped. Do any of you feel that? Axelrod asked, his heart beating madly, the adrenaline surging through him. The other two acknowledged they felt intense alarm. All three looked around a full 360 to find what was causing this nameless dread, a fear for their lives that was more intense than they had ever felt. Axelrod raised his arm and motioned forward. All three swallowed and slowly began moving forward. Again, the fear escalated. The three were sweating profusely. Wait, Costigan whispered hoarsely, and his trembling hand pointed directly westward on the track. Fifty yards ahead of him, the ghostly outlines of the three old homesteads were now in view, but Costigan was focused on something else. Directly ahead of the trio on the track, Costigan's night vision scope showed an oval area of blackness, about eight feet tall, surrounded by the night scope's normal green color. It was as if, Costigan said later, all light had been extinguished in that dark oval shape. Costigan felt the black structure was radiating a menacing presence. Neither Axelrod or Wilson could make out anything definitive in the gloom. But as if in psychological agreement with what Costigan was seeing, they instinctively acknowledged that the source of their fear was 50 yards further down the track. At that point, all three felt close to their breaking point, each one convinced that continuing toward the dark oval shape would lead to certain death. Without a word, the three began to retrace their steps, as if guided by the same direct order. Slowly, as they walked back, the terror began to subside. As if on a real stat, the further they retreated from the mysterious black oval shape on the track, the less fear they felt. After a hundred yards, the fear had left them. Silently, the three walked back to the command and control center trailer, located on the east end of the ranch, for the debriefing. A couple of years later, OSAP Bass program manager Kelleher interviewed Axelrod and Costigan separately about the events on the ranch that night. Both remained baffled regarding the source of the fear, and the interview confirmed that only Costigan saw the black oval shape through a night vision scope. 
The implication was that the oval structure could not be seen in the visible wavelengths, 400 to 700 nanometers, and had only been illuminated above 850 nanometers, unquote. Now that is, I'm sure you'll agree, a fascinating account. These are three very credible witnesses, each with a distinguished background, and each were overcome with fear when they encountered this oval blackness, even though, again, as was just stated, the oval blackness was only observable through the night vision goggles. It wasn't observable to the naked eye. Now, of course, many will look at this and assume this indicates something paranormal, something spiritual, perhaps even. But I want to encourage you to think a little broader about this. For instance, what if this is a kind of technology? Indeed, some have suggested that what is going on at Skinwalker Ranch may be evidence of an ancient, sophisticated technology, perhaps hundreds of thousands or even millions of years old. And of course, yes, that raises all sorts of questions about the orthodoxy of our history, our mainstream history. But nevertheless, when you think about it, from a military point of view, if you could induce this kind of fear in human beings, it would be a remarkable deterrent. And that's exactly what happened for these three highly trained individuals. Again, when it comes to what's going on at Skinwalker Ranch and other phenomena we discuss from this book, we should keep an open mind. We should be careful not to jump to conclusions about spiritual versus technological and matters like that. Now comes an equally fascinating aspect of this book that deals with the so-called hitchhiker phenomenon. Now, for those familiar with more paranormal research, this is often referred to as attachments. These are seemingly entities of a sort, intelligences apparently, that somehow attach to people, become associated with people, and that this association extends beyond time and space, meaning that very specifically, even if an individual initially encounters one of these entities at a place like Skinwalker Ranch or another so-called thin place that we've discussed on previous podcasts, when they return home, even if that home is thousands of miles away, could be the other side of the country, could be the other side of the world for that matter, they continue to have apparent interactions with these entities these entities show up in a variety of ways, making it very clear that they are not done with the individuals they initially encountered. And even more fascinatingly, and for some people concerningly, the association extends beyond the individual who had the initial contact at a place like Skinwalker Ranch. Indeed, as we find out in the book, this association often extends to family and friends and people in the general neighborhood. In fact, in the same way that scientists will try and track a disease contagion to determine how it spread, you can follow a kind of social contagion model with this phenomenon and see how the entities move from one person to another to another through apparent social contacts. Again, very fascinating and again, for some people, very concerning. Let's now jump to a section of the book that discusses this matter in greater detail. Quoting from the book again, quote, 10 days after the ranch episode, Kelleher received a call from Axelrod. He sounded puzzled as he recounted that almost immediately after he had returned home from Skinwalker Ranch, strange things had begun to happen in their home, not to him, but to his family. 
Axelrod recounted that on the previous night at about 2 a.m., while he was asleep beside his wife, Ruth, she had seen a large black humanoid shape walking towards her in their bedroom. Ruth did not scare easily, but she had felt alarmed and turned on the light but saw nothing. Ten minutes later, she clearly heard footsteps coming slowly up the stairs. She slipped out of her bed and walked to the landing, but there was nobody there. Quickly, she walked to her teenage son's bedrooms and saw they were both asleep in their beds. Axelrod said his wife was not completely freaked out, but the episode had concerned her. During a second call about a month later, Axelrod reported an alarming escalation in anomalous activity at their home. All of the activity appeared to be directed against his family. On several occasions, Axelrod was out of town. Axelrod reported that while he was on one mission overseas, his 16-year-old son Paul woke at night with multiple small blue orbs flying around his room. Occasionally, one would fly very close to him. According to Paul, the orbs appeared to be moving under some kind of control. When he began yelling, his mother ran into the room, but the orbs were instantly gone. Even after the bizarre night with the orbs, Ruth continued seeing shadow-like figures in her home, and she routinely heard loud noises down in the kitchen after everybody had gone to bed. Ruth and Jonathan Axelrod were certain that these events had begun after he had returned home from his trip to Skinwalker Ranch. Later, an even more bizarre event with strong links to the Skinwalker Ranch erupted in the Axelrod home. Again, Jonathan was out of town on a work assignment. It was after midnight and Ruth had turned off all the lights in the kitchen and was preparing to go upstairs when her eye caught a movement out in the yard. She walked over to the window for a better look, then froze as she witnessed one of the most bizarre sights she had ever beheld. Standing upright and leaning against one of the trees at the perimeter of her yard was a huge wolf-like creature. She saw the creature plainly in the dim night light. It had long hair and looked like a wolf, but it was standing on two legs. Ruth stood paralyzed, feeling both confusion and a kind of dread. The creature appeared to be staring right at her. Its gaze was not friendly. She continued to stare at this eerie sight, trying to fathom the impossibility of an upright wolf-like creature in a quiet, upper-middle-class suburban Virginia neighborhood. The creature then took one last look at her, turned, and walked slowly on two legs further into the tree line. Within minutes, she had lost sight of it. She stood there a long time, trying to determine if she had just had a very intense hallucination or if her mind was beginning to go. Three days later, at about 10.30 on a bright Saturday morning, the two teenage Axelrod sons were downstairs in the living room. When Paul got up to stretch his legs, a movement in the yard caught his eye, and he gasped in astonishment at the sight of a huge wolf-like creature standing on two legs in the backyard staring straight at him. Alerted by his brother's gasp, Michael jumped up and saw the seven-foot-tall wolf gazing menacingly at them. The animal appeared to be completely comfortable standing on two legs. Both Axelrod boys felt a sense of fear. Suddenly, the beast took off running towards the tree line, its long brown black hair blowing in the rapid movement. The beast ran easily and fluidly on its hind legs with long strides seemingly impossible for normal canine anatomy. Both boys stood in silence as the wolf was soon lost in the trees that bordered the Axelrod property. 
The thick insulated windows had prevented them from hearing any sound from the beast's transit across their yard. A couple of hours later, when Ruth came back, the boys breathlessly told their mother about the event. Ruth felt a deep chill as they excitedly described in detail an apparition identical to what she had seen a few nights previously and that she was still hoping was a hallucination, unquote. Now again here, I would warn us to be wary of our quick assumptions about what is going on here. Again, many will see this as a spiritual encounter, that it seems almost demonic in nature, that somehow they are being attacked by evil entities. But again, one could look at it quite differently. Again, if this is some sort of technology that, as we've seen with elements of the UFO phenomenon, can actually project experience or sights into the consciousness of an individual to the point where for the individual, it is impossible to tell if they are actually seeing something in the quote-unquote physical world or if it's merely something that's being projected into their occipital lobe in such a way that it appears completely physical and real. Now, of course, additional scientific follow-up, including trying to collect fur samples and that kind of thing, would be very helpful. But in the meantime, we don't know whether or not this was a projection into the consciousness of these individuals or something physically manifest in the environment. Sometimes it might be either or. But the bottom line is it could as easily be a kind of technology as something like an evil entity from some dark realm. We again have to be very careful about the assumptions we jump to. Many of our assumptions are produced by, for instance, Hollywood history and movies we've seen that we've forgotten that we've seen even that arise in our consciousness via these associations. Now, in regards to the possibility that what is going on at Skinwalker Ranch is actually evidence of some ancient, sophisticated technology, I'm reminded of a science fiction show I saw not long ago where there is these robot dogs, which, by the way, we have these robot-like dogs already. Boston Dynamics and other companies have produced these kinds of things. But in this particular show, these dogs have been left behind from a retail job they were put in to basically protect a store from thieves. And long after a kind of apocalypse had happened, these robot dogs were still in place, even though the context by which they were originally planned for had long since moved on. What if something similar is going on here, where this ancient technology was put in place to protect something hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, and it incorporates complicated technology such as projecting into the consciousness of the individual and manipulating their emotive experience as well. That may be what's going on here, that even if something like a portal was opened up in ancient history, because again, portals are a big part of the history of Skinwalker Ranch as well, even more recently, if that happened, that some civilization put this technology in place in ancient history to protect, for instance, this portal that connected to other parts of the galaxy or perhaps distant aspects of the cosmos. And then perhaps this civilization long since vanished, but the technology remains just like the robot dogs in the show that I watched, still playing their role, even though the initial context for which they were designed for had long since passed away. Now, in regards to what I just discussed, the idea of portals being in and around Skinwalker Ranch, again, this is part of the lore there. Even the more recent show, the Secret of Skinwalker Ranch has discussed this. 
and it has been spotted by witnesses, or at least phenomena in the sky that looks something like a portal opening has been observed, and on multiple occasions, witnesses, including credible witnesses, have seen entities supposedly climb out of these portals and then walk across the property, and sometimes they can disappear just as easily. Likewise, sometimes UFOs seem to sort of explode into the sky out of some opening, and then likewise, when they leave, they pass through some sort of opening in the sky where a different color of the sky, almost like they're passing into perhaps the atmosphere of a different planet, is observed. Again, this is hypothetical, but this is what it looks like. That to an individual on the ground, they see this. The witnesses see entities and sometimes UFOs come out of these things that look a lot like what we would consider a portal. And speaking of those portals, what that often means is that not only are various entities seen, but sometimes the creatures that emerge from these kinds of portals look like they are out of place, not just in terms of space, but sometimes also in terms of time. For instance, there have been creatures emerge onto the property that look like they are from the Jurassic era, for instance. And of course, Bigfoot or Sasquatch is another creature that has been spotted on multiple occasions on the property. Now let's move to a section of the book where one of these encounters is discussed. Quoting from the book again, quote, After about an hour of uneasy silence listening to Wit's rapid breathing, Kelleher and Bigelow got up to explore the perimeter. Wit protested at being left alone and quickly joined Kelleher as he headed towards the west side of the old, abandoned homestead. Bigelow was about a hundred yards south of the pair and could hear the dog several hundred yards away. Suddenly, a cone of silence descended on Kelleher and Wit. The crickets seemed to go silent, and even the faint rustling of the breeze in the trees ceased. Turning around, they saw a creature ambling towards them from the south. It was the size of a 150-pound pig and should have been making considerable noise as it walked. Yet the cone of silence dominated the moonlit scene as the creature glided past within 30 feet of Kelleher and about 50 feet from Wit. To Kelleher, it appeared the animal had a series of dinosaur-like spines on its back and also sported a very large, flattened, beaver-like tail. It noiselessly coasted past the pair and disappeared around the southwestern corner of the building, still not making a sound. Even Kelleher, who had spent hundreds of days and nights on Skinwalker Ranch and had already been exposed to his fair share of bizarre anomalies on the property, felt a distinct chill as he watched the surreal animal shuffle silently away. Kelleher looked at Wit, who was staring in astonishment at where they had last seen the creature. Quickly, as if a spell had been broken, they hurried around the corner to get another look at the bizarre beast. Nothing was visible. Wit and Kelleher then ran to the north end of the homestead, and still there was no sign of the creature. Ten minutes later, the pair were still searching feverishly in the area when Bigelow joined them. Unquote. Once again, another fascinating account of one of the events that took place on the ranch. Now, lest you be led to believe that the hitchhiker phenomenon we discussed earlier was a rare occurrence, perhaps a fluke, Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a frequent encounter, a frequent aspect of the activity that has been observed and documented at the ranch. And again, I think we should be thankful that an investigation like that conducted by OSAP 
actually documented this, and we now have it as part of the historical record. I'd now like to follow up with a part of the book that follows this encounter with this dinosaur-like creature we just discussed that appeared and then disappeared again, the dinosaur pig-like creature. One of the individuals that saw that creature perhaps come out of some sort of portal then encountered hitchhiker phenomena as well as poltergeist activity, which for anyone familiar with this topic is aware, is another frequent occurrence, frequent association, another data point that is part of the UFO phenomenon and high strangeness in general. Quoting from the book, quote, A few weeks later, Bigelow and Kelleher learned that Witt's eventful visit to the ranch was only the beginning of an invasion of frightening phenomena that penetrated her normally quiet and serene Virginia townhouse. Within a week of arriving back home, Witt told Kelleher that her roommate suddenly began screaming in fear at about 2 a.m. She heard him yelling in the adjacent room that somebody was standing over his bed. She quickly activated all of the lights and found that there was nobody in his room. It took hours for the roommate to calm down. In her first conversation with Kelleher, Witt explained that she had lived in that townhouse for a couple of years and that nothing like that had ever happened. She also reported hearing loud banging sounds from her kitchen and heavy footsteps on her stairs the previous night. She confessed that her roommate's hysterical reaction to this paranormal invasion was more frightening than the actual event itself. A week later, she again called Kelleher to report that on the previous night, she was slowly backing out of her driveway when a gigantic bird that looked like an oversized owl had swooped down and literally attacked her car. Twice the huge bird of prey had dived down at high speed, the creature's talons striking her windshield and her hood with great force. It was only after jamming her foot on the gas that she avoided another attack from the owl. Witt reported that she had never seen an owl that big, and she certainly had never experienced that kind of aggressive attack from any kind of bird. Witt sounded very disturbed as there were definite scrapes and gouges in the paint of her car. At the time, 2009, she was completely unaware of the perceived relationship in the world of paranormal research with owls and UAP. Although by 2015, Mike Cleland and others had already signposted this link. A month later, Axelrod called Kelleher with some very sobering news. It appeared that the poltergeist activity had escalated in Witt's townhouse, and that on one occasion both Witt and her roommate were in the living room when two wine bottles suddenly flew off the wine rack, hurtled across the room in front of them, and smashed loudly and messily on the opposite wall. Axelrod told Kelleher that Witt's roommate was so terrified by the litany of paranormal events that he had moved out of the townhouse. Although the intensity and frequency of the attacks then decreased, they were still relatively common. Witt reported that she frequently awoke to find black shadow-like figures in her room near her bed, and she reported seeing different colored orbs in her home. Witt was adamant that she had never experienced any events of this kind in her townhouse before her visit to Skinwalker Ranch. It was as if she had brought something back from Skinwalker Ranch to her quiet, affluent Virginia neighborhood. Several years later, Witt was still experiencing the poltergeist-like activity in her townhouse. Unquote. Now, because this book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, covers so many compelling incidents that were covered, investigated, and documented in detail by the Bass-Ossap team, 
It really is impossible to do it justice in the duration of a single podcast. Therefore, I plan to do another podcast, part two, next week, discussing this book and the revelations that emerged from the OSAP program and the investigations conducted by Bass. And now, for this week's episode, I'd like to leave you with a few concluding thoughts. First off, when I reflect on the OSAP program, two key points emerge in my mind. First of all, they conducted a highly professional, dedicated endeavor grounded in scientific rigor. This is so important in my book. Again, I certainly have said many times that I recognize the limitations of science when it comes to a phenomenon that seems to be rooted in consciousness. Nevertheless, we can learn a lot when we employ scientific rigor, when we record data, when we collate data, when we look for patterns, etc. Again, science as it presently exists may not be sufficient to fully understand this phenomenon, not to mention reality itself, but it does get us a long way. It is essential even if it's not sufficient. Secondly, in reflecting on some of the events we discussed today, when we consider the character and professionalism of the people involved, we can have high confidence that these events really took place. That's my perspective anyway, that sometimes critics will suggest that some of these seemingly bizarre episodes are merely the machinations of people with overactive imaginations or a lack of credibility. But here we have seasoned professionals who have years in the field who are encountering things they cannot explain. And yet they do their best from a scientific point of view to record the events with great detail. Again, the fact that this is now part of the historical record should not be ignored. This is an important step in the process of us seeking to understand this phenomenon to a much greater degree than we currently do. It's exactly these kinds of investigations we need more of. We need less ridicule, less scoff, and more dedicated science looking into a question that is perhaps the most important question of our era, if not of all time. Lastly, if you've been paying attention to social media since the release of this book, you'll no doubt have found that people are complaining that a book like Skinwalkers at the Pentagon is only going to undermine the credibility ufology has recently gained. From my perspective, that's a nearsighted view. Science needs to move beyond reductionistic physicalism if it hopes to understand this phenomenon. And in that sense, this book and the program that it discusses is an essential step in that very direction. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, let's keep this conversation going and growing. Don't forget to tune in next week as we continue our discussion of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon and the revelations that it exposes to the public sphere for the first time. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacademian signing out.